DW Inside Europe. Hello and welcome. I'm Nick Martin in Germany. On today's program, no membership timeline. Ukraine walks away empty-handed from the NATO summit. Erdogan gives his blessing, so Sweden can now join Finland in the military alliance. I'm glad to announce uh, that as a result, uh, President Erdogan has agreed to forward uh, the accession protocol for Sweden to the Grand National Assembly as soon as uh, possible. Gone for good, the Teflon Dutch Prime Minister finally comes unstuck. Rutte had become the face of several scandals also. He potentially faced a motion of distrust in him by Parliament, which would force him to resign immediately. Those stories and more coming up on the programme. NATO leaders met in Lithuania's capital, Vilnius, this week. And as Russia's war in Ukraine rolls on, the hopes of two European countries to join the military alliance top the agenda. As we'll hear shortly from Turkey, formerly neutral Sweden may soon become the 32nd NATO member after the Anchor government dropped its opposition. First, though, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky arrived in Vilnius, hoping his country would be offered an invitation to join the alliance quickly. But as Terry Schultz reports, he left the two-day meeting disappointed, but not empty-handed. Ukrainians knew it was highly unlikely the 31 NATO allies were going to agree to grant membership to a country at war. But they couldn't help but hope and put pressure on their partners wherever and however possible. One of those avenues was the NATO Public Forum, a summit side event where policies were debated and discussed, including with the high-level officials making them. And it was here that Ukrainian anti-corruption activist Darya Kalenyuk got to face U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, who had said earlier Kyiv still has conditions to fulfill to become an ally, comments which had prompted Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to unleash an angry outburst on social media. He called the lack of an invitation or even a timeline for an invitation absurd. Kalenyuk's own frustration was clear. When I was leaving Kiev and my son is now sleeping in the corridor because of the air raids, I had to explain my son that, you know, I'm going in order to meet President Biden and to ask him to invite Ukraine to NATO that soon you will not need to sleep in the corridor. On Friday, I will be back in Kiev. Jake, please advise me, what should I tell my son that President Biden and NATO didn't invite Ukraine to NATO because he's afraid of Russia? That suggestion didn't sit well with Sullivan. President Biden was clear and straightforward in his public comments about uh, his perspective on the question of Ukraine and NATO. And some of what you said in your remarks about motives, I think, uh, was entirely unfounded and unjustified. Um, the president said, quite simply, that he's not prepared to have Ukraine in NATO now because it would mean that the United States and NATO would be at war with Russia now. And he also pointed out that every country joining NATO uh, needs to take on a set of reforms, democratic and other reforms, and that Ukraine has made progress on this path, but there's more progress to make. Behind the scenes, it was widely reported, U.S. and British officials had warned Zelensky he wasn't scoring points with his accusations and that their citizens may lose enthusiasm for supporting the war if they don't feel appreciated. And by the time the summit ended, the Ukrainian leader's tone had changed. 
He said the long-term financial and military commitments to Ukraine's continued fight against Russia and its future recovery were a victory for the country. Christine Berzina, a senior fellow with the German Marshall Fund, watched this unfold. She believes Zelensky initially overplayed his hand, calling for NATO membership prematurely, that he should have focused more on the long-term security assurances, which were reinforced by the G7 as well as NATO allies at the summit. Zelensky got a really good deal, not the prize he wanted, but the prize wasn't on the table. What I'm worried about is how much he has offended uh, the populations that are literally keeping his people alive through a lot of this nasty bargaining. I understand the huge emotions. I understand the acute loss of life and freedom that he is facing. To say that there is anything more important to the Ukrainian people than having their security, safety, their lives back, there is nothing more important than that. So of course I understand he's emotional, but he also is not gonna get very far offending his closest allies. But there was also positive membership news at the summit. As it got underway, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan finally said he would let Sweden become the 32nd ally. Sweden's closest friend, Finland, shared the euphoria, especially since there'd been some awkwardness, to say the least, about Erdogan letting Finland in earlier, back in April. Charlie Salonius Pasternak, with the Finnish Institute of International Affairs, says there was a pan-Nordic sigh of relief. It'll, of course, enable Finnish, Swedish, and Norwegian defense cooperation to go back to where it was. Because when Finland was a member and Sweden wasn't, they actually had to stop doing some things they had done before. So now we can go forward on stuff. And then strategically, of course, for NATO, this doesn't just change Nordic or Baltic, but all of Northern Europe's defense geography gets changed with Finnish and Swedish membership. And on Friday, Ukrainian President Zelensky issued a video message from his train back to Kyiv, declaring himself satisfied with the outcome of the summit for his soldiers and his citizens. He thanked allies for their support and says he no longer has any doubt Ukraine will become a member of NATO. Terry Schultz, DW, Vilnius. While Ukraine may have a long wait, Sweden may be just months away from becoming NATO's newest member. Turkey's U-turn in backing Sweden's membership hopes is fueling speculation that President Recep Tayyip Erdogan may be pivoting back to his traditional Western allies. Until now, the Turkish leader has enjoyed something of a love fest with his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin, refusing to enforce sanctions against Moscow. So is it no longer from Russia with love? Dorian Jones reports from Istanbul. I have uh, just had a constructive uh, meeting with President Erdogan and Prime Minister Kristersson. I'm glad to announce uh, that as a result, uh, President Erdogan has agreed to forward uh, the accession protocol for Sweden to the Grand National Assembly as soon as uh, possible and work closely with the Assembly to ensure ratification. NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg announcing Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan had finally agreed to back Stockholm's NATO membership bid. There were smiles and backslapping and Erdogan was very much the man of the moment. US President Joe Biden, a critic of Erdogan's human rights record, once calling him a dictator, exchanged jokes with the Turkish leader. It was Biden's commitment to a military jet sale to Turkey that is believed to have clinched Erdogan's support. 
political analyst Sezir Erne of Politikyol, a Turkish news portal, says the summit is perceived as a triumph for Erdogan. The people are living the daily reality of the economic crisis very harshly in Turkey. So uh, now, for the time being, we stop talking about this and it's Erdogan's triumph. Even a part of the opposition are in awe with the success. But Turkey's opposition leader, Kamal Kılıçdaroğlu, slammed the NATO Erdogan love fest, accusing Western leaders of ignoring Turkey's appalling human rights record, with prominent political and civil society leaders languishing in jail on trumped-up charges. But real politic and its bedfellow, pragmatism, appears to be the order of the day, as Erdogan sent out signals even before the NATO summit that all was not well in Turkish-Russian relations. Last Saturday, Turkey released Ukrainian commanders who had been held as part of a prisoner swap, and that infuriated Moscow. The soldiers were supposed to stay in Turkey until the end of the war, as part of the deal brokered by Turkey between Ukraine and Russia. Moscow has been quick to punish Ankara. Russia has vetoed a United Nations Syria aid deal. That means more suffering for millions of Syrian rebels and their families trapped on the Turkish border, and adds to the risk they may seek to flee to Turkey. But Russia expert Zal Gazimov of Bonn University says Moscow will be careful in its response. He says the Kremlin is aware Ankara's actions are more gestures than substantive, albeit a little humiliating, and that crucially, Turkey continues not to enforce Western sanctions. Turkey and Russia, they have um, very different positions and very different interests in all regions. But both sides are aware in all these subregions that they have to communicate, to interact, and that is the content of the cooperation. It's not a mutual interest, but it's the understanding of the importance and essentiality of a cooperation and staying in a dialogue with each other. Turkey is heavily dependent on Russian trade, especially energy. Putin deferred billions of euros in Turkish energy payments ahead of Erdogan's re-election campaign, which helped to avert a widely predicted currency collapse. Analyst says in Erne questions whether Erdogan has performed any real pivot back to the West. With Erdogan, it's never say never. So tomorrow he can just revert back to Putin. And he was using this double speak in a way, negotiating with, uh, with Putin or uh, having good relations in general on the one hand and using it as a leverage to the West. And at the same time, having good relations with the West from time to time, trying to have good relations, let's say, and using it as a leverage to Russia. So I, I think this will continue. This is the framework of the foreign policy of Erdogan. But Moscow is threatening to end a Turkey-UN brokered deal to allow the export of Ukrainian grain from Black Sea ports. And that's further straining Russian-Turkish ties. Putin is calling for an easing of sanctions against Russia in exchange for his extension. 
the Erdogan, the grain deal has been a diplomatic triumph. If Moscow should end it, this would likely raise more questions over Turkey's balanced approach between Russia and its Western allies, and Ankara's stance on not enforcing Russian sanctions. It could well provide further impetus to Ankara's move back to its Western allies. Dorian Jones, DW, Istanbul. Still to come, can Spain's leftist Sumar or Unite movement help Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez win a fresh term in office? A reminder, you can get in touch with us and give us feedback on any of the stories you hear. Just email insideeurope at dw.com. I'm Nick Martin in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. Now to the Netherlands, where the scandal-hit government of centre-right Prime Minister Mark Rutte collapsed last week, prompting one of Europe's longest-serving leaders to quit politics for good. The stunning announcement follows the failure of Rutte's four-party coalition to agree on how to reduce the large number of asylum seekers entering the country. Last summer, the Netherlands faced international embarrassment after hundreds of migrants were found to be sleeping rough outside an overcrowded reception centre. I asked DW's correspondent in the Netherlands, Stefan Bos, whether the fall of Rutter's cabinet came as a surprise to most Dutch people. Well, Nick, I think it was not if but when the cabinet would collapse. Uh, the four ruling parties could not find agreement in crisis talks chaired by Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte with the Christen Unie or Christian Union and the Democraten 66, the Democrats 66, opposing Rutte's move to limit the reunification of families of war refugees. Uh, last year, hundreds of asylum seekers were forced to sleep outdoors, really in uh, squalid conditions, near an overcrowded reception center as the number of people arriving in the Netherlands basically outstripped the available beds there. It was really uh, horrific to see. Dutch and international aid agencies even had to assist as a baby died uh, in the chaos. And for the first time, Doctors Without Borders was among those providing humanitarian aid in the Netherlands. Now, to avoid similar situations this summer, uh, the coalition had tried for months to agree on a deal to reduce the flow of new migrants arriving in the country. But uh, Rutte told Parliament they had been unable to agree on tackling the crisis. And Stefan, maybe you could just expand on what some of those proposals were that they failed to agree on. Yes, well, the documents are still uh, being released, but we do know that uh, proposals included uh, reducing the number of family members uh, allowed to join asylum seekers in the Netherlands. Uh, additionally, there was a plan to create uh, two classes of asylum, a temporary one for people fleeing conflicts and a permanent one for people trying to escape uh, persecution, including also uh, Christians. The problem really started to emerge when uh, Rutte proposed not to allow children 
of war refugees uh, to be allowed into the Netherlands automatically. Now, that proved too uh, much for parties uh, such as the Christian Union. They find it very important uh, to have uh, families uh, united. And uh, therefore, Rutte told Parliament it was time for elections, expected in mid-November. But in a surprise move, he also announced he would leave politics. Er is de afgelopen dagen gespeculeerd over wat mij zou motiveren. In recent days, there has been speculation about my priorities. The only answer is the Netherlands. My position is irrelevant. Yesterday morning, I decided I would not make myself available again to be party leader of the VVD party. After the elections, when a new cabinet takes office, I will leave politics. I informed my party and fraction chairs about my decision yesterday afternoon. Maar ik wilde u dat wel aan het begin van dit debat vertellen. Now that really was a surprising announcement for a man who was known as Teflon Mark because of his ability to survive several government crises during his time in office. Why do you think he's decided to leave politics altogether? Analysts say that he realized it would be nearly impossible to form a new coalition government under his leadership. Rutte had become the face of several scandals indeed. Uh, also, he potentially faced uh, a motion of distrust uh, in him by Parliament, which would force him to resign immediately. So he really tried to save face and to avoid uh, those measures. Uh, he had faced public pressure after uh, significant scandals, including when Dutch tax authorities wrongly accused thousands of families of fraudulently claiming child welfare payments. Many parents faced bankruptcy after being ordered to uh, repay childcare allowances, leading to divorces and even suicides due to the strain. Uh, following uh, accusations of racial profiling, uh, the tax authority uh, admitted that 11,000 dual nationality families were just singled out for a particular uh, scrutiny. So that was really a scandal. Uh, Rutte's leadership style was also blamed for other perceived scandals, such as the failure to compensate thousands of people suffering from earthquakes due to extensive natural gas exploration. And more recently, he came under pressure over the massive influx, of course, as we now know, of migrants and failed agreements with farmers. That was another one, uh, fearing for their livelihoods due to strict nitrogen rules and other uh, policies. So he, uh, you know, it all added up. And I think uh, in the end, he had no other way than uh, just to go. DW correspondent Stefan Boss talking to me there from the Netherlands. Later this month, Spanish voters will head to the polls five months earlier than expected. The country's election was meant to be held in December, but was brought forward to July the 23rd. Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez's governing socialists and their junior coalition partner from the left, Podemos, were soundly beaten in regional and municipal elections in May. The Conservative Popular Party, supported by the far-right Vox, held those results as a desire for political change. But how true is that? And what's the thinking behind the decision to bring the election forward? Ashi Sharma reports from Madrid. Acabo de mantener eh, un despacho con Su Majestad el Rey en el que he comunicado al jefe del Estado. It came as a big surprise when Pedro Sánchez stood outside the steps of Moncloa Palace, the official residence of the Spanish Prime Minister on May the 29th, the day after regional and municipal elections, to announce a new date for the general election. 
The results in May exposed a disarray within the left-wing parties. They were overwhelmed by a triumphant and seemingly united Conservative Partido Popular, PP, backed up where needed by the extreme right-wing Vox Party. But calling an early election could also suggest that there is some method in the madness of Pedro Sánchez. His announcement meant that the left wing had less than two weeks to organise itself into a united front, and it also stopped the right from building up momentum to December. Creo que puedo ser útil a nuestro país. Hoy, humildemente, voy a dar un paso adelante. Sanchez's gamble is now looking more than intriguing. Since making the announcement, Yolanda Díaz, the vice president of the government and the politician, tasked with bringing the left together, has delivered spectacularly. Her left-wing platform, called Sumar, which was established about a year ago, suddenly kicked into action and within a week brought together 15 left-wing parties under the Sumar umbrella that will be led by Díaz into the election. Ernest Utasan is Sumar's campaign spokesperson. We negotiated a deal with 15 parties, which was very challenging because we, we had to do that in less than a week. But fortunately, we are very proud to say that we managed to do it. And now we have a platform with all those 15 parties, including Podemos inside the list. It was very important to create this alliance because in order to make the, uh, the progressive coalition possible again, we absolutely needed to have everything which is at the left of the Social Democrats unified in one single platform. Otherwise, because of our electoral law, having the left running in separate pieces would have made a battle for the progressive coalition impossible. So this deal actually around Sumar gives us the possibility to win. While Sumar has the charisma of being a novelty for voters, the reality is that the right has been on the rise for several years, with Vox spearheading a movement to the extreme right, which has surprisingly also taken in many young people. Victor Camino, leader of Young Socialists, says that young people are being suckered in by trends they're seeing all around them. We have in a conservative way in the world uh, with Bolsonaro, with Trump, in the north of Europe too, in Denmark, in Sweden, in, in, in Italy for example. I think we need to say to the new generation of voters, we are creating a good conditions, good frame for our rights. We need to defend these rights because the rights can disappear. And I think this is the message for this generation. Despite this newfound unity on the left, political analyst Alejandro Quiroga suggests that the agenda is being set by the Spanish right. The campaign is uh, so far has been taking place within the, um, the frame created by the right. That is that uh, the socialist Podemos government is a legitimate government and they, they had a number of um, alliances with, um, with pro-independent Catalan parties and pro-independent Basque parties. If you look at the results of the regional and municipal elections, it has worked for the right. The outcome of the general election has become more intense since the political formation of Sumar, which has galvanized the left-wing parties under its umbrella. But the Partido Popular and the Vox Party have, in the last few years, not only gained ground, but stolen a march in terms of connecting with the electorate. And it will be they who decide whether Sumar will save Pedro Sanchez's government or if it's been too little, too late. Ashish Sharma, DW, Madrid.
And the best way to never miss an episode of Inside Europe is to remember to hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Nick Martin in Germany. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Nick Martin in Germany. In the next half hour, why foreign investors are betting on France over other EU states. France has highly qualified engineers and technicians and a real industrial culture, and the country has an enormous advantage compared to neighbours such as Germany, cheap nuclear electricity. Can Europe restore its natural habitats without undermining farming and food? Saving the continent's dying languages, we meet some of the 2,000 speakers of RNEs. This is a cultural treasure for the people here to have their own language. We should protect this treasure. And the British performer still treading the boards at 98. Broadcasting from Germany, this is Inside Europe. France may have a reputation for high taxes and endless red tape, but it's currently Europe's leader when it comes to foreign direct investment, or FDI. Last year, more than 1,250 FDI projects were launched in the country, hundreds more than in Germany and the UK. Paris hopes its pole position will boost the country's image and improve its economic performance. However, economists believe the overall economic impact of foreign investment is limited. Lisa Louis has details on one showcase project in the northernmost region of Haute-de-France. The area is brimming with paper. They are working to finish a first of three dark grey hangars of this Giga factory called ACC, where batteries will soon roll off the line. One day, this plant will provide power cells for up to 500,000 electric vehicles. The 3 billion euro project is supposed to create up to 2,000 direct jobs and is owned by a consortium of Dutch carmaker Stellantis, Germany's automobile company Mercedes and French energy giant Total Energy. Mathieu Hubert is ACC's general manager. Until now, we've been getting all our batteries from Asia. That's China, South Korea and Japan. We aim to create our own industry and design, produce and sell batteries that are 100% made in France or Europe. The joint venture is planning to construct similar gigafactories in Germany and Italy. But there are reasons why the consortium's first mega project is located in France. 
France has highly qualified engineers and technicians and a real industrial culture, and the country has an enormous advantage compared to neighbours such as Germany, cheap nuclear electricity. France has the world's highest percentage of nuclear power, producing around 70% of its electricity. And the government is planning to construct at least six additional nuclear power plants. Other industries are also betting on France. 1,300 foreign direct investments were announced last year. They include projects in the pharmaceutical, telecommunications and software sector. President Emmanuel Macron's government thinks that's at least partly due to its pro-business stance, as Olivier Becht, minister-delegate for foreign trade, attractiveness and French nationals abroad, told me. We have reduced corporate taxes from 33 to 25%, made our labor law more flexible, cut red tape and provided additional land slots to investors. What impact does foreign investment have on France's economic figures when it comes to unemployment and growth? Foreign direct investments in 2022 created 58,000 jobs. The economy expanded by 2.6% last year and will continue to grow this year, whereas countries such as Germany entered into recession. But are these relatively good economic results really down to foreign direct investment? Not according to Anne-Sophie Alcif. She is chief economist at Paris-based BDO Consultancy. Unemployment has gone down from 10% a few years ago to now roughly 7% because our population is aging and there are less people available for work and businesses have been receiving subsidies to soften the economic impact of the COVID-19 epidemic and the Ukraine war. That's why they could invest that money, which led to growth. There was a time when unemployment topped the list of concerns in opinion polls and bringing it down, no matter if thanks to foreign direct investment or something else, could have helped the government win voters. Nowadays, though, reducing unemployment is no longer a trump card for the president. It's only worry number eight for the French, according to the latest ranking. Purchasing power now holds the poll position. And so, despite his good economic results, Macron's approval ratings are stagnating. Only about a third of the French now have a good opinion of him, according to the latest polls. Lisa Louis, DW, Paris. Now to plans by Brussels to rehabilitate Europe's forests, agricultural lands and marine habitats that were damaged during decades of industrial expansion. The EU nature restoration law is a key plank of the bloc's Green New Deal that aims to fight climate change. EU lawmakers this week approved the text of the law, allowing it to proceed to the next stage. However, the vote passed with a razor-thin majority due to fierce opposition from right-wing politicians. They argued that the plan is bad for embattled farmers and puts food security at risk at a time of already high inflation. I asked André Prescher-Spiridon, EU policy officer for the German environment group Bund, whether those concerns are genuine. I think concerns are always valid, especially in the farming community because it's about their livelihoods. But what really disappoints me and what I really hold against the EPP group. So just to explain, that's the centre-right European People's Party. 
they did not explain the law, what the commission proposed. We must really say what it is. It was lies what they spread. For example, this very often mentioned 10% that would be taken away from farmers. That's right. EPP politicians said that the proposal obliges EU farmers to abandon 10% of their farmlands. This was never a part of the legislation. It was never proposed. It wasn't true. They still kept repeating it, even though there was no factual basis to it. Or the hydropower issue. German EPP said this will lead to hydropower plants being dismantled. Yet the law clearly said this is 1% of the EU river system and only obsolete barriers should be targeted primarily, not running water power plants. So this is what I really hold against EPP because they did not explain it to the rural communities. They kept putting gasoline on the fire, not trying to build bridges and trying to score points with the voters by creating fears and then trying to vote against the law. I think that most people by now will know that the EU has set very ambitious climate targets, but at the same time, they may be less aware of the importance of this proposed law, the nature restoration law. Could you just expand on why it's so critical? I think it's, it's one of the key pillars of the Commission's Green Deal. So we, we had a lot of legislation on the, on the climate protection. But in biodiversity, this is really the, the key legislation to bring back ecosystems that have been uh, deteriorated and also strongly interconnected to climate change because you need healthy ecosystems, you need the peatlands to make sure that we stay within the 1.5 degree target that is part of the Paris Agreement. Peatlands are one massive source of greenhouse gases, for example, in, in, in Germany. And without restoring those, those emissions will not go down. And if that does not happen, we will miss the climate target. And then can you just explain to us what EU lawmakers have approved today? On the forest, what the Commission proposed was quite vague and not too ambitious. It basically set a few indicators for which member states would then have to define what would be a good status. For example, how much debt would you need in a forest to get to a good ecological status? So member states would be able to define this level and then have to show that they have increasing trends towards those targets. On the maritime issue, actually it was a quite positive result because it was strengthened by the Parliament. We have a big problem with our maritime uh, protective areas, so you can still do harmful fishing practices. This was strengthened by the Parliament today to say that if there is a protected area, that actually means protection, which also in the end would then benefit the fishers who can then benefit of higher fishing stocks. Now, of course, the EU is 27 member states and there is always a disparity between how those different member states implement EU law. Are you confident that they are going to take this seriously and that it is going to be implemented in an even manner? I'm quite confident, but again, it, it depends on the willingness of national member states. One thing that would help to sweeten the deal, so to say, would be to increase the funding on EU level. So this is a big gap that the Commission hasn't addressed and also the Parliament and the Council didn't really solve completely. So what would be necessary is additional EU funding to, to finance the implementation that would also yeah, encourage member states to take more ambitious, more concrete actions to restore nature in, in their territories. A lot of member states who need to do more action on biodiversity rejected the law. So for example, the Scandinavian countries, because of the pressure of the forestry lobby, rejected the law. Also Italy, a very big member state, a lot of important biodiversity areas rejected this, this law. So yeah, you can have doubts whether all member states pull at the same string, so to say. But in the end, we are now very hopeful that it will become European law and then that this will lead to a more mainstreamed effort across the continent. 
And then finally, because of this misinformation that you say was being spread by right-wing groups, spreading fear about this proposed law, what can you say to Europe's farmers to allay their fears? First of all, the biggest threat is climate and the biodiversity crisis. So you cannot farm if you don't have healthy ecosystem. If you have an increasingly unstable climate, farming will be much more difficult. But this is one part of the solution to to help farmers to be able to produce in in the, the future. And also, yeah, it is an opportunity to get funding for farms which are in marginal areas where productivity is anyway not high, where natural habitats still occur, which we want to restore. So this would be a chance for them to get increasing public funding to support their work. Andre Pressure Spiridon, there, EU policy officer for Bund, the German equivalent of Friends of the Earth. And now a clip from one of dozens of Europe's minority languages. This is actually by Alida Sanz, and it's in the Aranese dialect, which is spoken by just 2,000 people in a small corner of northeastern Spain. This year marks the 25th anniversary of the adoption of a Europe-wide pact to protect minority languages like Aranese, which are in danger of dying out. The European Charter for Regional or Minority Languages is meant to encourage young people to take up speaking traditional dialects. Enneke Mullers has more on the pros and cons of speaking Aranese from a small Pyrenees village called Val d'Aran. Lush green pastures are crisscrossed by hiking trails, a stream that is now almost a torrent in early summer. The sun shines from a blue sky. In the distance, mountains tower nearly 3,000 meters high, their peaks still covered with snow. Standing in the Val d'Aran, you might think you are in the Alps, but the locals speak a language you would never hear in Switzerland or Austria. And that even the Spanish-speaking tourists often do not understand. Today is a beautiful day, Monica says in Aranese, as she enters one of the bakeries in Vielha, the valley's main town. She speaks the language almost all the time, with family, friends, and at work. This is a cultural treasure for the people here to have their own language. We should protect this treasure. The baker, José, likes it when his customers talk to him in Aranese. But of course, they're not required to. I speak Aranese with all the people from the valley, but if we're being honest, it's actually a dialect of Occitan. Aranese is a Romance language spoken mainly in the southern third of France, bordered by the Val d'Aran. Catalonia is the only region where a form of Occitan has the status of an official language, Aranese. This has been the case since 2006. However, only about 1,700 inhabitants of Valderan speak the language in their daily lives. Ten years ago, there were 2,300, according to figures from the Catalan Statistics Institute. Josep Sanz, president of the Institute for Aranese Studies in Vielha, blames immigration for this development. Thousands of people have moved to the area in recent years because there are many jobs in tourism. The Val d'Aran is one of the largest and most important ski resorts in Spain.
All these migrants came from South American countries, from Romania or countries in the Maghreb. Sure, they speak other languages. Because of these people, the number of inhabitants in the valley grew and the percentage of people who speak our language on a daily basis dropped sharply. Because a small population group naturally can't compete with several thousand immigrants when it comes to language. The Catalonia region is trying hard to promote Aranese. For example, it is legislated that the inhabitants of the Val d'Aran should have access to radio and television in their language. TV3, Catalonia's regional broadcaster, has a studio in the main town of Vihelia, Catalonia Radio, as well. Tracking down interesting topics in the valley every single day is no easy task for reporters, says TV journalist Covita Arne. Every Friday, she presents a TV magazine about the week's events in the Val d'Aran, in Aranese. It's a very small area, and the people we interview are always the same. Politicians, people in charge in the administration. Well, at least there are some new faces there right now. Aranese researcher Giuseppe Sanz hopes that not much will change in Catalonia's regional policy in the near future because that could have consequences for the special status of the language. The language is latently in danger. If politicians come to power who do not consider the language worthy of protection, it is doomed to die because of its weakness. Likewise, if they stop teaching it in schools and the media stopped reporting in Aranese. But for now, the language is still hanging on, and any immediate change to that is out of sight. In a Kurt Mullis with that report, which was originally compiled by Oliver Neuroth. Still to come on Inside Europe, the actress still performing solo on stage at 98. And a reminder that DW covers all the major events across Europe throughout the week. If you'd like to stay up to date, you can check out our website, dw.com, or go to the DW Europe social media pages. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Nick Martin in Germany. In March, as part of our Woman of Europe special edition for International Women's Day, we featured the non-Nigerian British actress Thelma Ruby. Back then, she was only 97 years old, but she's since turned 98. And by popular demand, Thelma performed her one-woman show, That's Entertainment, last Sunday in London. Our reporter, Danny Mitzman, was in the audience, and she was so enchanted by Thelma that she took a trip down memory lane and a career that spanned eight decades at the performer's home in Wimbledon. We're looking through a photo album, and your mother made this album. My mother did this, yes. This is Fiddler on the Roof, and this is Orson Welles as Falstaff and his mistress quickly. So you did Shakespeare on stage with Orson Welles? Yes. <laughs> that is something. That is something, isn't it? I've only done Shakespeare three times, 
and this was the first time. Oh, this is Cabaret, the wonderful song in Cabaret, the pineapple for me. That's me and Peter Sellers singing the song about the pineapple. And there you are holding a pineapple. Was that a real pineapple? Yes. I was actually co-starring with, my name was above the title, with Judy Dench. When was that? That was 1968. Born Thelma Wigader in 1925 in the English city of Leeds, Thelma's mother had been a child performer in Music Hall, billed as Paula Ruby. So when she started acting, she adopted her mother's stage name Ruby and became Thelma Ruby. Oh, this is a musical called Once Upon a Mattress when I played the Queen. I often seem to have been the Queen. <laughs> That's not you, is it? Yes, that was the first thing I did in the West End. I was about 22, and it was The White Devil, which is a, a classic by John Webster, and I played the keeper of the house of converted whores. <gasps> this that, is you in a real chorus this line. This is Tyrone Power, and this was an all-star chorus line. They had the leading person from all the shows in the West End to make up the chorus. We sang the song Chattanooga Choo Choo. So he sings, Pardon me, boy, is that the Chattanooga Choo Choo? And then we're all going, Choo Choo at the back, you know. <laughs> These all go back a long way. Do you remember the first time you got on stage? Yes, indeed I do. During the war, I was evacuated with my mother to New York for four years. I went to school there, I went to college there, which is where I studied acting and the theatre. And I came back here, the war was still on, it was October 1944. And at 19, I was eligible to be called up. And I saw that you could do national service by entertaining the troops. I lived in Leeds with my mother, I'm a Yorkshire girl, uh, and my parents. And Mother came with me down to London to Drury Lane Theatre, which was the headquarters of what was called ENSA, which was entertainment for the troops. The real world was, was I think, Entertainment National Service Association. But the troops used to call it every night something awful. <laughs> uh, we stood at the side of the stage in Drury Lane watching the auditions. There was a, an old lady playing the violin, there was a very portly, bald tenor singing, All things come home at even time. I thought, well, I hope maybe I can do better than that. And the show Oklahoma had opened in New York, but it hadn't come to England yet. So I marched on and sang a song from that show. I can't say no. And I saw them in the audience waking up and taking their feet off the seats in front of them. And when I finished, a man came running on the stage. I hadn't done any professional work before that. He said, oh, you're just what I'm looking for, for a show that starts rehearsing next week. Talking about him, the man that I adore. Can't stop talking about him and talking about him and talking about him. I can't stop talking about him and though we'll see my ball. Can't stop telling about him. And that was my first performance and it was in hospitals all over the country sometimes on airfields or army camps often in stately homes which had been turned into convalescent homes and I grew up very quickly there was a whole audience of boys who had been blinded there was a whole audience of boys who'd lost limbs 
and perhaps the most memorable was on VE Day, May the 8th, 1945. So the boys with no faces, no ears, no noses, no hands, but what an audience. It must have been quite extraordinary, though, to be able to make those poor soldiers who'd been through so much trauma laugh and have something joyful. It was. It felt very worthwhile, because I was what was called a soubrette, which was singing comedy songs, really. I did make them laugh. Thelma's one-woman show last Sunday was completely sold out. She treated us to an 80-minute extravaganza of songs, sketches and anecdotes about her life, career and happy marriage to the late Canadian actor and director Peter Fry. He kissed me and a bell went boy, a whistle went woo, a trap door opened and I flipped right through. Can't stop talking about him, talking about him, talking about him. I married Peter in 1970 in Israel and went to live in Israel. And then, while I was over there, I was asked to go to South Africa to play the part of Golda Meir in a play written by William Gibson, which had been on Broadway with Anne Bancroft playing the part. And Peter and I did it all over the world. We did it for eight years. You were playing Golda Meir, who was the Prime Minister of Israel. You also met her, didn't you? Yes, before I went to play her in South Africa... And if there hadn't been a, a security man outside, you'd never have known she was anything unusual. She opened the door of her little bungalow, she made the tea, and she sat down and she said, Thelma, I want you to do me a favour. I said, what is it, Mrs. Mayor? She said, I saw this play on Broadway with Anne Bancroft and she stooped. She said, I don't stoop. I said, I promise you I won't stoop. I said, but you're giving me a problem. She said, what is it, my dear? I said, well, I don't smoke and you never stop. Oh, she said, don't let that worry you. Just once in a while, light a cigarette and put it straight out in the, in the ashtray and then come back and tell me all about it. But when I got back, she was in hospital and she died. It was just before she died. But if I can't do it, Get out and let somebody do it who can. Oh, how I would love to phone Washington someday and say, please, could you send us a couple of hundred plowshares? Sleeping well? Too much. Now change the prescription. Good. Ten years ago, Thelma started thinking it was time to retire. But then, at the age of 90, she got a call from the manager of a theatre where she'd done her one-woman show back in the 1990s. And I went to see him at the beginning of the year, February or March, and he said, I want you to come here in July. I thought, well, July will never come. <laughs> far too far ahead. All right, I'll say I'll do it. Well, I did it in the July, and it was so successful, I've had to repeat it many times since. So eight years ago, you were already ready to retire, That's but right. you just can't give up. Well, I have to be so grateful that I'm still well enough and strong enough to be able to get up and do a show. And I've just finished filming. It's amazing, isn't it? What, are, what were you filming, can I know? It's a film on the life of Amy Winehouse. Do you know who I mean? I do, the singer. The singer. And it's a big production, and I'm playing her great-aunt Rini in it. 
And I think it's because she was Jewish and I'm Jewish. I think that's why I got the part. But but I'm so glad I did. I'm I've loved doing it. There are wonderful cast and a wonderful crew, and it's been such fun still being part of 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 working. I can only tell you that I feel the most fortunate old lady in the world because I do not feel an old lady. I don't think I look an old lady. You should have seen the astonishment on some of their faces on the film set when they heard how old I was. Make someone happy. Make just one someone happy. Make just one heart the heart you sing to. One smile that cheers you. In this huge, long career, what have been the highlights? I can't pick out a highlight because I've enjoyed, I think, everything I've ever done. Every single part I've played, and they've been very varied. I've done everything except the circus. I think the best part was when I was in Cabaret with Judy. And I sang, and I danced, and I made them laugh, and I made them cry. I had the whole thing. It was a wonderful part. One of the best feelings I, that anyone can ever have is when you make an audience laugh, when you hear a whole audience screaming with laughter. It's just life-enhancing. It's just wonderful. I won't sit here like a dummy while you insult poor mummy. <laughs> if you feel that, that, we better call it off. Oh, I'm glad you spoke your mind out. And I'm very glad to find out how you felt before the wedding day occurred. And to think you nearly lured me into marriage. Well, that's cured me. No, please, my dear, don't say another word. I think we'd better say goodbye. Far from being Thelma's swan song performance, I'm sure, Danny Mitzman with that report wrapping up this week's programme. A reminder to hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts to ensure you never miss an episode and give us a positive review as they help other people to find us. This programme was produced by Helen Sini and sound engineer Ziad Abu Sleiman. And I'm Nick Martin. Thanks for tuning in. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Germany. (laughs) 